Welcome to another episode of the Untitled Podcast. Let's discuss Sonic Youth. What you are about to hear is deeply disturbing. dollars to see Sonic Youth? Yeah, that's a good deal. <laughs> okay, so here's a group I really love, Sonic Youth. I came across Sonic Youth when the album Evolve came out, and I was really captivated by the cover. And then when I played the music, it was unlike anything I'd ever heard. They should be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Sonic Youth is a New York City band. I feel like they almost updated that whole CBGB aesthetic, uh, but they surely reinvented rock guitar. One thing that showed how we were into unusual processes and also operated very spontaneously in the recording studio is uh, what happened while Lee was reading the text for In the Kingdom. Thurston snuck up to the door behind Lee and tossed in a pack of firecrackers. It scared the hell out of me when they started going off and the booth started filling with smoke and, you know, I think I screamed and, and most all of that stuff is left on the recordings. With one final back and forth rocking motion coming to rest. Before I saw anything, I saw him, like, grab his head and duck and then I realized there was suddenly, like, and then I saw smoke, so it was really a lot. I think I can still see some of the burn marks, but I remember, oh, here we go, there's one. 
They had some weird tunings, not based on anything sometimes other than a noise or feedback or simplicity. They had prepared instruments. These guitars and basses that they had, typically guitars, they would stick drumsticks underneath the strings or drill holes in it to get certain sounds. They might break all the strings, but each guitar sounded a certain way and was used for a certain purpose. When Sonic Youth did their second record with me, Evil, they had really gone even further into the whole thing of using lots of crazy guitars. Sonic Youth loading in involved maybe, maybe 40 guitars. When I saw them, they brought in trash cans full of guitars, and they all looked like stuff you would get out of a trash can. But they knew which guitar to use for which song, and they put on a hell of a show. What was interesting to me was they were one of the few bands that I saw who was touring on a new album, but was playing songs from the next album that they hadn't put out yet. A lot of that was Daydream Nation, and that was the album that kind of put them on the map with critics. I got to meet him before the show because there's kind of a funny story. Back in those days, we just had landline telephones. And if you needed a number, if you didn't have a phone book for a certain area, you could call the operator and ask her what the number was. So I called information and asked if they had a number in New York City for Kim Gordon. And they did. And it was her. And so I called and left a message saying that I'm going to go see them. And if they would like, they could crash at our place which was not terribly unusual at the time. Bands did that a lot, but it was kind of weird for a fan out of the blue probably to call your home and offer such a thing. So when they got to the gig, I got there early and they came in and they were incredibly nice. Thurston Moore was kind of bouncing off the walls the way he appears to, if you've ever seen him. Um, it's live. You know, it's not, it's not a clone. It's not fake. This shit's fucking live, man! Kim was really sweet, and she wore a Peter Chris t-shirt. Lee Ronaldo and Steve Shelley were both really nice, and then they played this amazing show. Well, I'm gonna come out, and I'm immediately gonna puke on stage, and then douse the puke with lighter fluid and light it, and then kick it into the audience. And this entire field of 100,000 people are gonna go up in flames, and then I'm gonna get a, a, a shotgun. I used to have a giant poster of the Sister album on my wall in Richmond, and then years later, my license plate was Evol. E-V-O-L from the album Evol. So occasionally I'd get someone come up to me and they'd be like, oh, you're a Sonic Youth fan. But they seemed like they were breaking all the rules to us. I mean, they were coming in playing songs that weren't on their album. They were playing with these shitty cheap guitars. They just were not the kind of band that you would see in a stadium, even though eventually they would become that. 
they were probably the most unlikely band to get on a major label and to be successful in the way that they were. I'm still blown away by Sonic Youth's history because we never really um, bought into being a popular rock band. brought in Steve Shelley in 1985, it was like a whole different thing. Steve Shelley is a powerhouse drummer. I mean, he could have played with any band. Steve would beat the living shit out of some drums, and he had a good groove. He really one of the best drummers that I've seen in rock, and highly underrated.
their first couple of albums were a little bit of a mess. They didn't really have the sound down yet, and they certainly didn't have any of the uh, commerciality that they would have later on. And so their first album is called Confusion and Sex, and they did a few singles. But when Bad Moon Rising came out in 1985, that was the shit. First of all, one of the best album covers ever. And the group was really coming together as an identity. You know, Kim started having her sort of sexy voice. Thurston was just all outrage, but with humor. And Lee Ronaldo would sing occasionally, kind of low, monotone. And then Steve Shelley back there just whipping ass all over the place. The album was kind of loosely themed around the dark side of America. and included references to like Charles Manson, Satanism. And the most brutal track on here is Death Valley 69. And unlike what I thought at the time, it's featuring Lydia Lunch, not Kim Gordon, on the song. And Lydia Lunch is somebody to check out. She was even less commercial than Sonic Youth. Death Valley 69 deals with the Manson murders, something that the band kind of had an obsession with in the early days. But I got into that album after Evol. When Evol came out in 86, this was just an intense record. It was so dark, and again, good cover, that really kind of matched the music very well. The giant track off this album for me is Star Power. Tom Violence is also great. Secret Girl. My mother used to say, you're the boy that can enjoy invisibility. I'm the boy that can enjoy invisibility. Close your eyes, make a wish, cross yourself.
This is where Sonic Youth really started to become like a pivotal influence on alternative and indie rock. They were like the gold standard. They didn't sell out at all. They had the look and they had the courage to really go out there when they weren't necessarily the best musicians in the world. And that's about the time that Kim and Thurston got married and they became one of the celebrated alternative couples for almost 30 years. Ronaldo had been a member of Glenn Branca's electric guitar ensemble. Glenn was an avant-garde composer and he used all kinds of alternative tunings and dronings and put out several different albums. The one I have is called Symphony No. 6, Devil Choirs at the Gates of Heaven. Sometime in there, the rock critic Robert Griscow introduced a term for the genre that he felt like Sonic Youth belonged in. And it was called Pig Fucker. I don't know. I, I don't get these rock critics, especially the, those old school guys. You've probably heard on my show a number of times about me taking them to school. But Pig Fucker? Really? And it appears that Sonic Youth shared my scorn for those writers and even had a song called I Killed Chris Gow with My Big Fucking Dick. Hey guys, Robert sucks. <laughs> One other thing that came out of this was the song Expressway to Your Skull. And that was called a classic by Neil Young. And eventually Neil would take them on the road with him as an opening act. And they would suffer pretty brutal audiences not expecting to see or hear such a, an odd band. Not realizing that they were witnessing history. <laughs>
guitar rock that probably had not been so out of control and so in your face since Jimi Hendrix. Sonic Youth may not have won over any fans while touring with Neil, but our profile rose. And later that year, Neil asked us to perform at his Bridge School Benefit concert. The group also had this weird obsession with Madonna, and they put out a side album called uh, Ciccone Youth, which I think was Madonna's given name, Ciccone, Ciccone. did a cover of Into the Groove and just some kind of weird stuff laying around and they called it the Whitey album. Not much to listen to, but one funny thing is that they did a cover of Addicted to Love by Robert Palmer, which is really just Kim in a karaoke booth singing off key. But it's pretty funny. was Sister. And this is really where they refined their blend of the pop structures along with the sounds that they had. This was really an album that was a, a step up, as each album was for a while. A lot of it had to do with the works of science fiction writer Philip K. Dick, and this was the first Sonic Youth album to crack the top 20 of the Village Voice critics poll. So the critics were catching up. The Sister is a really solid album. It's got numerous tracks, including Hot Wire My Heart, which is a cover by a band called Crime, Pacific Coast Highway, Cotton Crown, White Cross.
So I've said this before recently, what do you do when your band is on fire and you've started to really catch hold in the American psyche, even if it is underground? You put out a double album, and thus Daydream Nation came in 1988. Lots of great songs on this record still, Teenage Riot, Silver Rocket, The Sprawl. They had a song called Hey Joni, which was a nod of the hat to Joni Mitchell. And then a really weird one called Providence. And there's a lot of noise underneath a recording of Mike Watt from the Minutemen leaving a message for Thurston Moore. And he mentions how Thurston needs to quit smoking so much pot. Thurston, Watt, Thurston. I think it's 10.30. We're calling for Providence, Rhode Island. Did you find your shit? You gotta watch the motor, Thurston. Your fucking memory just goes out the window. We couldn't find it from that at all. We were wondering if you looked in that trash can. When we threw out that trash, man, with the bag in your hand, did you dump it? Call later. Bye. A great album. And they actually moved back a little bit from the commerciality. This is not one of my favorite records. It's, it's not bad by any means. But it came in between two of my favorite records, Sister and Goo. And when Goo came out in 1990, that was really exciting. It's really cool when you see a band that you've watched from near infancy become just this powerhouse. And on Goo, they got signed to a major label. <laughs> was the sixth album and they had come a long way i mean it had only been a couple of years since their first album and the difference between their first album and this is glorious i mean it is such a giant leap of creativity and learning to master their sound almost every song on this record is great another good song another ice tea there's a just for me I feel like I'm disappearing, getting smaller every day. 
She was singing all along, but this one she really came to the forefront, and it's an interesting song. described the song as being about a poser leftist girl lusting after Black Panther. And I guess she got the idea because she had interviewed LL Cool J, and he was going on big with his hit, Going Back to Cali at the time. I also loved LL Cool J's first record, Radio, which was produced by Rick Rubin. And when I interviewed him for Spin Magazine, I asked him if he'd had anything to do with the samples and what kind of rock music he liked. I couldn't hide my disappointment when he said, Bon Jovi. But one neat thing was they had Chuck D from Public Enemy come in and do sort of a spoken word piece. It's not rapping, which would have totally destroyed the song. Having Chuck D work with us was amazing, as both Thurston and I felt he got us a little bit. The feel of the song and then Chuck's deep, resonant voice on top of it, it just rocked the fuck out. One of my favorite Sonic Youth songs. We were
if that album wasn't great enough, when they put out Dirty in 1992, despite the really weird and lame album cover, this record really bloomed for the band. And it was produced by Butch Vig, who had done Nevermind by Nirvana. So it had that gloss, but still the power. I mean, the drums on this thing sound incredible, and the sounds that they make just couldn't be reproduced. It's probably the peak of their very best work, and it has a shitload of great songs. This is in the CD age, so the length of the album is longer than it would have been had it been a vinyl record. And again, I would say it would have been better a little short, but the songs on here you can't argue with. Swimsuit Issue, for example. Don't touch my breast. I'm just working at a desk. Don't put me to the test. I'm just doing my best. I feel sure my nose. Just a real response. And I ain't giving you a hand. You're just something for the wrong. This is Kim singing about how the secretaries were treated at the record company when she would go there. And one of the lyrics is, Please don't touch my breast. I'm just trying to do my best. One big favorite on the record is Teresa's Sound World. And I don't know how to describe this other than this beautiful layering and layering and layering of sound.
kind of a low-key song that you would normally expect Kim to sing. And in fact, Kim's voice on this record is very different from before, where she really goes for more of a growl and a punk sound. There's a song called Drunken Butterfly, which sounds to me to be about a drunken sorority girl. And Kim just puts in this devastating edge in her voice that's just really punk. But my favorite on this has got to be Chapel Hill. Now, firstly, I live near Chapel Hill, and I know all the references in the songs and what they mean, so I'm a little biased. But this song is epic. It's almost five minutes, and it almost has a sprawl of like a prog rock song. And there's many different parts to it, and every one of the parts sound great. could not say after this album that they don't know how to play their instruments. Now they might not play instruments like most people do, but they knew what they were doing and it showed evidently on Dirty.
94, they released an album called Experimental, Jet Set, Trash, and No Star, which is a reference to the individual band members. And this was a much less commercial sounding record. They'd really gone back to, you know, maybe a few albums before the really big ones that run uh, the David Geffen label. It didn't do as well. And one of the songs, Bull in the Heather, was the single, but I still don't think anything on this record matches what they had done on the previous four or five. It really does have a different sound, even though Butch Vig was still on board as the producer. said that they purposely did not spend as much time polishing and overdubbing and making it a big rock record. But I think they lost something along the way. I think the band was intimidated by all the success they had, and they didn't want to be seen as selling out. And that's a real hard thing for a band in their position. But I think the back-to-basics thinking that occurred on this record was similar to when, you know, the Beatles went back to basics on the White Album. But I think they really lost something. Dirty and Goo were so powerful and so huge that when you put on this record, it just didn't hit you in the same way. Karen Carpenter had interested me for a long time. I always found Karen's voice incredibly sexy and soulful. But at the same time, was there any band ever more white bread than the Carpenters? I didn't always appreciate their music. When they first had radio hits, they were considered ultra-conservative. But 20 years later, in another context, their music sounded beautiful to me. The Carpenters were such a sun-drenched American dream, such a feel-good family success story, like the Beach Boys, but with the same roiling darkness going on underneath. The only autonomy Karen felt she had in her life, she exerted over her own body. I can make myself smaller. I can disappear. I can starve myself to death. Thank you. 
time they started doing a lot of guest appearances and started doing some things outside of the band really kind of getting into the culture they were rising up from the underground culture that we had all known so they took an even further step back when they made a soundtrack album and they made it to a, a movie called made in the usa and in some ways they're the perfect band to do a soundtrack album but Again, coming after the step back from commerciality and then putting out this very non-commercial album took them back to a lesser known, lesser appreciated status. And I think the record company wanted to grab what they could while they could. So in 1995, they put out a compilation album called Screaming Fields of Sonic Youth. And it's, to me, a very poorly sequenced record, but it's their pre-David Geffen company label work.
By now, Thurston Moore and Lee Ronaldo were starting to show up on lists of greatest guitar players. And they put an album out called Washington Machine in 95. And that album is a little more of a return to the big rock sound, but a lot of the songs had more open-ended improvisational pieces. Like, for example, the song The Diamond Sea is 20 minutes. And it's mostly a ballad, but it's really beautiful. It's it's a little more work to listen to their records. And I think that's what the difference is between what the really, truly great Sonic Youth had versus the lesser commercial Sonic Youth that I still enjoy. Just a different perspective. But Washing Machine was conceived and recorded like some of the band's earlier albums. And I think they spent a lot of time in the studio coming up with ideas rather than bringing ideas to the studio, which I think is always a better way to go. But when you have that kind of uh, gravitas as artists that they had, and being on a major label, they were able to do whatever they wanted to. And there's a reference in there to the Shangri-Las. They would always drop pop culture references in. They really would live on the fringes of culture, but there were certain things within the culture that they would pull down with them and turn into something weird. And supposedly the band was thinking about changing their name to Washing Machine. So you can see where their head is at. They just really were playing with the idea of being a successful but very non-commercial band. And that's what makes them so interesting. But going forward, I feel like the albums weren't as fantastic as the ones that were in the infancy of my fandom. The critics who came on board late were just kissing ass. But aside from the Diamond Sea, I feel like Washing Machine is a little aimless and lacking something. Look into his eyes and you shall see Why everything is quiet and nothing's free I wonder how he's gonna make her smile And love is running wild on the Diamond Sea They went into a period of creating instrumental improvisational albums. Again, going back to their roots, they came back to making a more standard album with The Thousand Leaves in 98, and they had headlined Lollapalooza and made a fair amount of money, so they built their own studio in Lower Manhattan. I see you back tonight The Eternal was an album released in 2009. It turns out to be probably their last record ever. It wasn't a bad way to go out. It was just sad the way it went out and why. In effect, uh, Kim Gordon and Thurston Moore, who had been together for like 30 years, broke up. And that was a big shock.
gone on to do several projects, and Thurston has got a solo career. Lee Ronaldo has a solo career. Steve Shelley's playing with different people. I wish I had a band and I could get Steve Shelley to play. Lee Ronaldo said that Sonic Youth are quote-unquote ending for a while, but in her autobiography, Girl in a Band, Kim says several times the band is split up. Things are too raw right now for any ideas of about getting the band back together, and everybody's kind of gone on and done their thing. But this is a group that deserves some research, some digging in, check it out. If you like some of the tracks I've played here, I really think you're going to be in for a good time. I would start with Goo and Dirty, see what you think of those albums, and then go to Evol and Sister. It's great stuff. A unique band that will never be replicated, and there won't be another band like this. The times have changed, music's changed, and... We just don't simply have the tolerance that we had back then for the experimentation. It seemed like uh, our generation of kids, we wanted to push it as hard as we could. How popular can you be while maintaining the weirdness, the experimentation, and the integrity? And if nothing else, Sonic Youth had tons of integrity. God bless them. Go forth and thrash! This has been produced by Donnie Shattuck.